It's the Occult Mr. Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast. It's where we look into the hidden Mickeys behind the Mouse of Magic. I don't even know what that means. Okay. (laughs) Hi, this is Matt here. As always, joining me is Thomas, the Paranoid American. That's right, Paranoid as ever. Right on. Okay. Uh, We're doing a shorter episode, but a twofer. Uh, uh, We're going to start by putting our toe a little bit outside of animation uh with the gnome mobile although i guess technically it has animatronics that was kind of cool um <laughs> it, uh, and this was a special request that was well worth it i think yeah yeah it's an interesting detour and um you know the other one is bed knobs and brooms <laughs> i, I want to say boomsticks uh, thinking about uh army of darkness or something <laughs> bed knobs and broomsticks which um has a little bit of animation i guess I want to watch the hybrid. I definitely want to watch the the hybrid that you just mentioned. Knobs <laughs> and boomsticks. I'm already I'm already thinking about it. They show up on their transdimensionally um, uh, traveling bed and pop a cap or two in folks. Yeah, I'd like to see that. <laughs> and deadites. <laughs> <laughs> or just in the middle of um, you know, um, the West End or something. That'd be fun too. I guess <laughs> they can still keep the Nazi theme. Honestly, now all of a sudden it's it's versus the Nazis. Oh yeah, yeah, and then to get a castle, castle Wolfenstein sort of vibe yeah, or man. something. I, I can go I'm, for I'm that. Already, I'm already into this. I'm already invested. <laughs> so obviously, this is a, a frontline Disney production of the time, uh, and I'm going well, both of them really, but more so with the No Mobile. I had straight up never heard of it before until you brought it up. So <laughs> me either. It had just recently come up, and it was on a conspiracy um, little podcast that I was doing with some friends, and they mentioned two things things i'd never heard of one was no mobile which was the easier one to track down the other one was that there's a possibility that walt disney himself was invited to the bohemian club at some point and he was even considering a special projection system that would work and project against the redwood trees in like a specific area and it almost made the way it was being described made me think of like this 3d projection mapping that you see where people will project on like the side of a building and it looks all 3d and things are happening but it's just projected light it almost sounded like a crude earlier version of that but for whatever reason it likely did not happen and Walt also went and joined or created his own little secret society that was almost counter to the bohemian grove uh so so it feels like there might have been some kind of a falling out i dug in deep to try and find more about this i couldn't but I did come back with the no mobile, which I feel is still a decent sort of little booty that I got to bring back as a victor. Uh, I wonder if that uh, kind of projection technology did eventually end up. I, I was just I haven't been on it because I haven't been in Florida for years. But uh, there's the the runaway railway, which apparently has a lot of like basically plain surfaces with 3D projections. So that might be like the ultimate version of that. Not a movie, of course. It's a ride, but. I want to learn more. If I find anything else out about it, you can be sure I'll bring it up at some point. But um, that, and I think Rise of the Resistance as well, um, it's the sort of thing where you go through a room and then you go to a smaller room, turn around, and the lights, have, the projections have made that first room into a completely different um, setting. So that's cool. I haven't experienced it myself, though. I just watched the YouTube videos, you know? Have it's almost been... like one of those VR experiences where they they can tell when you've turned your head completely around. So then when you turn your head back around, they can just spawn a completely different world without you really perceiving the the change. Exactly. So um, and then you're on the trackless uh, ride vehicle. So it, it sounds cool. I, I you know next time I'm in the states, I'll maybe try and get down there and do that. But. Um, yeah, I, I wonder what would freak me out more, being in a room with all those projections by myself or, or being in a full running It's a Small World by myself. I'm not quite sure which one would be more disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> I get, you know, just lots of light and flashing and yeah, I don't know. 
this movie's pretty chill though i i don't in a, in a way i guess i mean it certainly has that like sunday afternoon i'm mildly bored feel to it <laughs> it it felt like it was put together with a bunch of b-roll or like things that were shot in between other things that didn't give as much attention uh, it it didn't feel like a fully qualified movie that everyone really put their heart and soul into, and I don't mean any offense to anyone that's still alive that was involved in the making, but it it absolutely felt like a not even a straight to TV, but you know, so almost almost like a freebie. Like this would have been something that they just gave out to someone if they went and saw a matinee. Well, uh, Ed Wynn, who was the Gnome King, I mean, he basically was on Death Store making this, so this being his final film and i think i've seen him show up in the twilight zone a bit too because i've been doing those um we get the creepy factor because our mary poppins kids have returned karen dutrice and matthew garber yeah and they're introduced as such on the title credits i know it's in a different just... movie <laughs> <laughs> it just says the mary poppins kids because it's like we know that you've never heard of any of these people before so here's something that might give him a chance. Yeah, that's like when you your reputation creates some horrible nickname that you can't shake even when you like meet new <laughs> people, you know. <laughs> like, and it's kind of true because I mean the the kid died when he was in his early twenties in India from hepatitis. It said. Oh man, yeah, no, that yeah, goes. There's that goes multiple with stories. Yeah, there's a lot of stories. Uh, and then the girl didn't necessarily do a lot. She kind of just dropped out of the the acting industry altogether. So this. They truly always were the Mary Poppins kids. And even if you go and see them in No Mobile, they're still introduced as the Mary Poppins kids. So that was that's basically what their their title remains in Disney lore. And and part of the conceit of this film seems to be sort of like, um, oh, you love them so much and how cute they were in Mary Poppins. Here they are again and in their own feature. I'm like, no, no, I didn't like them in Mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the thing I liked the least about Mary Poppins. <laughs> He's disconcerting children yeah <laughs> i mean they... i mean honestly you're making a strong point and i feel like i might just agree by default for now that the, the kids were probably the the most boring aspect of mary poppins the, this is a rare instance where all the adults were the interesting ones and the kids were kind of dragging everyone else back i mean this one definitely makes up for it with um you know gnomes and and weird animatronics in in a redwood forest so i, I i'll take that it is creepy, and it it has those connotations of they're definitely in Bohemian Grove because of the redwood forest. Like there's just you just have to accept that. <laughs> but it also takes this really weird turn. Like first, there's almost like a philosophical crisis where there's no women left, and there's this one young gnome, and he has to figure out how to repopulate. And automatically, I'm just thinking about like Book of Genesis or, or like one of those early biblical tales where you're like, all right, who? Who's the least my sister right now? Out of everyone in here, who's least my sister? I went darker and thought the last act of Twenty Eight Days Later. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not even the repopulating world. It's just England at that point. <laughs> well, and this one was just this little section of the woods, apparently, which they haven't even really ventured out because they didn't go that much farther to find another huge little enclave of gnomes. I'm not sure what you call a, a gaggle of gnomes. <laughs> just mix mm. them up. Um, and then they're just like, oh, <laughs> nomenclature, oh, I hate you. That's, that's good. That's <laughs> so good. But they just find like this, uh, this huge swath of, you know, gnome women. And now all of a sudden it went from, I'll take anything I get to pick your best out of like these 20 or 30 options. But I was also wondering how many of those are related? Like, are there that many families out there or are they also sort of at the same you know crisis where like inbreeding is just one generation away well i was trying to work out like um if if we are groving here at first i was like oh it's five oaks the grove itself and i don't know they dance with the spirits of gnomes out in the redwood forest because uh what five oaks is the um like the sanitarium i guess but i feel like they could be cover for your your weird you know rich guy get-togethers or something well, and I mean, it's so sparse out there that you would hear whatever was going on, but you might not even see it. And we only see a tiny little bit of these redwood forests, but they imply that um, that they basically they own all of it, like everything there is to see that he basically owns most of it and that they've been clearing it out and 
I guess, massacring these gnomes in the process. They don't show anything, but they definitely imply that it's been essentially like a like a gnome holocaust that's just decimated the the gnome population, which kind of leads them into this situation where all of a sudden they're almost facing extinction. Is anyone ever actually taking down redwoods? I'm pretty sure you can't now. I don't know. I've been to Muir Woods, so that's like my basically my image of this thing you if know, you got that disney cloud i'm sure you can chop down as many redwoods as you want though especially <laughs> especially when this movie was made yeah i guess uh, you know being in the mid 60s it might be a little bit different but i you know i mean well, we got vertigo where they're looking at all the the rings of uh redwood so at that point it already you know people probably had in their mind it's a bad idea to chop these really old things down although someone had to chop that one down to show you the rings so <laughs> <laughs> can't see the rings without chopping down the tree <laughs> you can't see the no-mobile without chopping down some redwoods and in, in the process i assume oh yeah not 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 down with the no-mobile song I, I i was like this is a bad song i don't know if you've seen uh the fantastic mr fox where they're having their hoe down and then um oh who does the james cromwell someone does the voice of the rich old guy is like Stop it. He's like, that was a bad song. <laughs> you wanted the, the narrator to come out and, and shut it down on this one. <laughs> I wanted the no mobile song shut down. Yeah, <laughs> it was very annoying. And the way that they were singing it and how passionate they were about being in this no mobile it was it was pretty annoying. I mean, it's just and, an old uh, car, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he was like so proud of like an even older car, which at this point might as well have been you know like a like a fossil um i didn't even bother looking it up i don't know if you took down the name of the car that he was bragging about that he had before this one i think it was white but i could be remembering it wrong that's all i got it was white (laughs) (laughs) i do remember hearing my my grandma talking about jump seats and never quite figuring out what that was so it probably had a jump seat Yeah, I mean, he he was all about it, and the kids didn't seem as impressed as anyone else. And then they burst into this incredibly annoying and overly rehearsed song where everyone was, you could see them like almost mouthing the words, getting ready for their part where they would sing in spontaneously. Uh, and I, I don't know, I just, musicals in general annoy me. So this one, it kind of represented some of the ways that I don't like musicals being incorporated. I love Jungle Book musical, and I love some of the other uh, earlier story i think sword in the stone had a couple maybe for nostalgia reasons this one though i don't see any redeeming qualities about a single song that comes up nostalgia or not <laughs> yeah i mean uh in, in bed knobs specifically i remember one of the songs starting as the answer to a question if someone asks you a question you answer with a song that's that's <laughs> annoying that's that's not cool that's so disney <laughs> It, yes, it is very Disney. I mean, I guess it's very Broadway too. I've, uh, I'm not that um, knowledgeable of of show tunes and stuff. Not not things I tend to listen to. <laughs> Although, um, I, I did mean, we're bump... in the thick of it with these movies that we've been watching. We're we're right in the thick of the the cross between show tunes and Hollywood almost. Yeah, now that we've gone live action uh, for a few for sure. So that that is weird. Live action Disney films until. I guess until Tron and probably including Tron have a weird clunkiness to them. I don't know if it's that these, the film crews weren't like as, you know, spit and polished maybe as the, the Paramount or the, the Fox people or what. A little bit of that. And honestly, both of these movies clunky for different reasons. To me, the, the no mobile movie was clunky just because it really did feel like they were on a road trip between two different projects and decided to shoot a movie in between. So there's a lot of the, I mean, the songs are over rehearsed, but there's also some scenes that feel like they just kind of winged it or maybe someone flubbed something. They were just like, eh, you know, like no one, no one's expecting much out of this movie. We'll just keep it. Just, just keep the camera rolling. But then bed knobs and broomsticks, that one felt like they had to step on an exact spot every three to five seconds. And they had to say things uh, in like very specific times. And there was almost no room for any kind of that, that amateur feeling improv that we got from no mobile. It was almost the exact opposite. Like it was over, over engineered. Yeah. Um, Was it bed knobs you wanted to hit song lyrics on, or did you actually want to look at the no mobile lyrics? No, I don't really care much about the specific no mobile lyrics. Really, the the feather in the cap for no mobile 
is just how incredibly weird and un, you know and forgotten this movie is and that essentially it's a little bit crass and that they're just trying to get this dude laid and just going on an adventure to get this little gnome guy hooked up and then even when it gets to the hookup part it's a little bit creepy about it cuz it's like you know who do you want to take possession of and then it turns into oh no and and I quote the movie and I believe this was completely out of cultural context but it was something like it's the shemale who chooses not the male and i believe they called the female gnomes shemales in the context of this movie and then they all chase this guy down and it turns into like a big obstacle course slash you know like tag you're it kind of deal and that's how you know gnome pro you know procreation essentially works so i, I don't wonder, know i, I wonder if interesting in concept 67 you were just supposed to say it not like she male but she male like that's just <laughs> like, they're like like email <laughs> yeah like it's one word like they just kind of changed the feed of she right i mean i watched it with the captions on and it definitely had the hyphen in between and i know it i know it's not what it would have been now but it was an interesting because i couldn't figure out why they would you know specify that so it was just an interesting little quirk it was a hidden mickey <laughs> also in the the crassness i was thinking about like when he takes a fishing hook uh, and the rs that would actually be a pretty bloody mess <laughs> yeah when he has to catch him he's trying to get away they have this this uh caricature sort of like evil you know guy with the bowling hat and you know i, I don't know I, I i appreciated how quickly the movie moved along and it was very formulaic and i kind of like i was never questioning you know is this going to end soon it, it always felt like it was just about to end because i don't know it it was it was definitely like on a on a straight course and it followed this formula that I was comfortable with. Whereas Bedknobs and Broomsticks was a little all over the place. And, mm. and actually, before I even get into that movie and the lyrics, because I do have some lyrics from it, uh, you said that you've got some nostalgia ties to it, which I completely don't have. And I think this is inverted from some of the previous movies that we watched together. I'm I'm going to see if I can find an image of it real quick. Um, I think I was very entranced by the VHS box for this one. VHS bed knobs. Um, something about the box was very uh, alluring to me as a child. Let's see if I can find that. No, that's not it. No, that no, that's a so. Is this one, one that you actually owned? I didn't. I got it multiple times from the VHS store. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. It's it's kind of tiny. See if we can get it there. Um, I I get. Well, I guess just the fact that it had like the cartoon characters and the people in the same shot maybe got my attention as a kid because that was still kind of a novelty, you know, in the early 80s. I mean, Roger Rabbit was super excited, exciting for doing that. So I, I, I guess it was. Yeah. And I really loved Roger Rabbit, too. And that came out. So I guess I just had a thing as a child for putting animated characters and real people on the screen together. And there weren't many options at this point in time. Which is weird. I, feel, I didn't watch. I Harry almost Poppins. feel a little offended that you mentioned Roger Rabbit in the same sentence as this movie. <laughs> oh, that's a great movie. I, I took the the floppy disk of the video game to my fourth grade class and, and played it for an hour before school every day in front of all my Roger classmates. Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> did you Did you ever play the NES version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No, I had the PC one. So, so I don't know if it was the same on the PC, but in the NES version. If you went into the club where Jessica Rabbit was singing and checked under a table, it gave you like an 800 number that you could call. And it, and she it was like, you know, call me sometime, you know, big guy. And if you called it, it would give you some hint about the game about like you can throw, you know, dog treats at the dogs and they'll leave you alone or something. But it was done in Jessica Rabbit's voice. I always thought that was the most <laughs> wild. I mean, this was pre-1985 this must have been like 85 or 86 at the latest uh, and it was just blew my mind that you're playing this game and you could get up from the game and go and make a phone call and talk to the girl that you just saw in the game uh in all of her eight you know bit pixel goodness yeah i think it's probably a couple of years later in that though because it wasn't roger rabbit 88 or 89 i think <laughs> but anyway we're gonna be talking about roger rabbit at some point because that that goes on this you know trajectory so um, I was thinking though. I mean, I had my plush Roger Rabbit as a kid. Uh, did they make a plush Jessica Rabbit? I was just imagining some kid walking around <laughs> with a little plush Jessica Body Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, that's what that basically becomes. Um, what I hear recently, I, I 
I think I heard someone said they put like a a, a rain like a not a rain well yeah like a big raincoat a trench coat on Jessica Rabbit on the the Roger Rabbit ride and I was like oh, that's 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 not cool. <laughs> so the game was eighty nine. You're right. Yeah, the NES game was nineteen eighty nine. Okay, but yeah, because everyone else had the NES, right? So they couldn't bring it to school and load it onto the school computer like I could with my PC version. <laughs> so that's why that's why I was cool. <laughs> well, that was before everyone was guaranteed to have a PC. That was and like one I, out of right. however many. And then I failed science class. <laughs> <laughs> I think I turned it around, but yeah, I remember uh, yeah in the fourth grade failing science class for a while. I don't you even remember played a number munchers. Some, yeah, something like that. I was too busy playing Roger Rabbit. I, I guess we'll move that trajectory to uh, bed knobs and broomsticks. I almost said it wrong because uh, my you might see my note title. There's bedpans and gnome sticks. So <laughs> just yesterday I had like weird like names going through my head all day. So <laughs> I could never remember so, the real name of the movie. <laughs> for me, I didn't have any nostalgia for this movie. In fact, I I. I don't remember watching it, but I'm sure I did because a couple of the songs and especially the fish animation scene was really familiar to me, but the entire movie annoyed me to hell. <laughs> and I, and I feel like maybe I was annoyed when I originally watched this as a kid at some point, but every scene felt new as I was watching it, but it was new in a boring way. Oh, I know. And, and I'm not really going to bat for this movie, but I'm trying to explain what the allure was to Lil Matt. Uh, the bed transportation scenes were like still are still completely up my alley. You know, I hadn't seen Willy Wonka when at this point when I first saw this. I hadn't seen the Willy Wonka boat ride. So this was like probably my gold standard for this sort of thing. I watched this, 2001 this... a lot as a kid, too. I was like little eight year old Matt was like watching <laughs> 2001, 2001 every like two and weeks. And knobs and broomsticks. What an interesting, uh, you know, alternates there. <laughs> well, I mean, it has the, you know, this similar effects for the flying over landscape stuff right as uh flying over the jupiter moon or whatever it's supposed to be at the end of that movie <laughs> i mean i was huge into little nemo uh because there was i think uh an adaptation that didn't get huge in the u.s but i think there was like an anime adaptation of little nemo and then also the comics and again an nes game so definitely little nemo when i saw bed knobs and broomsticks i would always think of little nemo and then wish it was as cool as little nemo I'm also thinking, um, you know, Disney, before they were willing to actually put films out, this would being one of the earlier films they would put out on VHS because uh, they were still like go see our theatrical re-releases at the time. That might be another reason I rented this a few times because you they didn't have Snow White or Dumbo, right? They had bed knobs and broomsticks because um, Dumbo was in the vault, right? You were supposed to wait for the next theatrical re-release. So, so did this one never get into the vault? Was it just not vault quality? I don't think most of the live-action ones are, were considered vault okay. quality. And um, like, I don't think this did badly when it came out, but I don't, it certainly didn't light the world on fire or anything either. But um, the first strategy when they're like, we have to do something about VHS was compiling bits of music. So you'd have like one song from Dumbo followed by a song from Pinocchio. And maybe they just shove like the fish from this in, you know, that sort of thing. So there's tons of compilations that do that. Um, people a few years younger than us would have had those, you know, Disney sing-along videos. Uh, there's one at Disneyland that's like pretty insane. It suggests that the characters actually run Disneyland and do the cleaning and stuff. <laughs> they probably do it's just that it's a, a poor guy in a suit and they force him to also clean <laughs> yeah 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 that's it uh but but it's the other characters force him it's like the inmates are their own wardens you know i'll send you that video <laughs> stanford prison experiment just disney <laughs> well that doesn't seem like that much of a stretch <laughs> no <laughs> and and honestly this particular movie this bed dom broomsticks movie it's fascinating to me in that if you were to just write it all down on paper and told me what it was about, who was in it, and that it was half cartoon, half movie, I would be all in. This would just sound like the coolest little cult classic movie, but somehow they managed to make cartoons and fighting Nazis just kind of a little bit of a snooze fest, and I'm, st I'm still bitter about it. I don't think. Angela Lansbury is probably the right choice. They probably thought they were going to get like a, a mature Julie Andrews vibe. And no slight against her. I mean, obviously she was a very talented lady, but maybe not quite the right one for this role. She doesn't seem whimsical, you know? Yeah, well, I guess Julie Andrews turned this one down. 
and Angela Lansbury got it. And uh, and this you made a note here, which I didn't pick up on until I read your note. But even in this movie, which is pretty old and not that far into her career, she looks a little bit old already uh, and not in like a like a bad way. But just in that you went from Mary Poppins to like Mary Poppins mom's sister that, you know, never wed. And it was just like a weird sort of sidestep. Uh, that felt like a downgrade. Like they should have done something, you know, off like out of the the ordinary. I think for this one, although it is kind of interesting that we got the gaslight lady. Uh, like she, like Mary Poppins. We were talking about how she just gaslights the kids. Like, oh no, we never went anywhere. What are you talking about? You know. And now we literally get uh, Angela Lansbury, who's the one where the gaslighting term came from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I guess she's here because she sings well, you know, and they're like, well, hopefully the rest will just like pan itself out. But <laughs> I, I did think it was funny at the first scene when they're um, getting all the kids, um, you know, to their to their foster homes or whatever. I just assumed that the first set of kids were probably the Lion, Witch and Wardrobe kids, you know, going off to uh, a more popular <laughs> tale. <laughs> but we're, yeah, we're stuck with a bed. That was a broomstick one. And and as forgettable as the Mary Poppins kids are, I think these kids are even a little bit more, un, uh, you know, forgettable. So they might have even been able to do like a hat trick here. They should have put the, you know, the, the Mary Poppins kids in this one too. And it would have made it a little bit more interesting, maybe. Oh, they would have been totally awkward looking in 1971, though. <laughs> you would have had like these, like, right, you know, <laughs> pre-pubescent creepy twins right (laughs) (laughs) um but of course the one kid is i guess supposed to be just hitting puberty or whatever because he's like i don't believe in this stuff anymore right so and then that's where she has to answer with a song so (laughs) the other one i was just thinking like you know it's supposed to be this world war ii like magic and nazis thing i'm like okay yeah like you said on paper, maybe it sounds good, but watching it, or like, ah, uh, the fancy of this movie can't match the the Crowley Hess magic duel. That that's the movie I need to be watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so there is some interesting backstory to this because the the movie, in a very loose way, is based on um, Dion Fortune, and Dion Fortune was uh, like a huge occultist, and one of the things that she was kind of one of the interesting trivia tidbits that she was known for is that she would cast all of these spells against Hitler uh, for World War II. And th- this actually happened all across the um, the West, which is a little unknown fact, but there was also this movie called The Seventh Victim that I think from, I'm going to get the year wrong, but I think it was like 1943 or something. And this was a movie that was co-written by Bodine DeWitt, who was a personal assistant to Aldous Huxley at the time. And he was writing all these horror movies and he was trying to get some background information and got linked up through RKO, the, the film company, with an actual Satanist coven or what that's what they called it in, in this uh, this memoir about DeWitt that I had read. And that he goes to this place in, in Greenwich Village, New York, like a nice ritzy upper class area. And it was all upper class Satanists and that uh, they all just kind of like where um when he went up there they were casting spells against hitler and when i read the bio for dion fortune it was almost exactly the same you know same thing that she was doing only she was doing it from over the pond whereas this one was happening in greenwich village so it sounds like there's this very real direct link to dion fortune who was essentially the inspiration for angela lansbury in this movie I mean, we still have that going on now, right? I mean, on, sometimes you'll see on Facebook or something where people are like, hey, at this time, we're all going to get together and have the intention about this, you know? Oh, well, now it now it sounds, you know, it's a little bit more acceptable just because people find themselves a little bit easier. To me, I guess it's just fascinating that such like eccentric sort of belief systems still found each other off the internet, you know, and and big enough to congregate into like these large cities and and you know have all this influence and then in turn you know inspire disney movies which is why we've got this podcast talking about these interesting occult connections to disney that just come out of left field sometimes i mean in a way the the multi-dimensional traveling bed is kind of like a um analog internet you know <laughs> it's like sending an email to uh doctor um not doctor to, to our huckster guy i'm, I'm missing his name um 
you know, because now you'd send them an email, right? So <laughs> here you have to take a bed through time and space. Well, space at least. Well, and and so those are the two sort of symbols presented in the title of this movie. The bed knob represents this magical teleportation device that can bring you to different dimensions and times and places. And then the broomstick is, you know, not beyond just the witch's broomstick, which is the obvious one, but this one kind of represents being able to rise above like the physical world or, or like put the physical world at your command because now you can fly around and you can use this inanimate object as kind of like your, your token to this world. So we, we have lots of deep symbolism just in the title of the movie alone. Yeah, it's, I mean, you have to sit there and think about it for a few minutes, right? It's a bit of a strange title. Nice alliteration. I keep, you know, mumbling it into like different names. So that's kind of fun, too. But but yeah, I guess I think it's a little it was, bit of a mouthful. It doesn't roll bed knobs and broomsticks does not roll off the tongue. I I guess I never really figured out what a bed knob is, even though it's obvious. Yeah. Probably because my bed growing up didn't have any knobs on it, so it was confusing. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it seems like a like a dangerous accessory that no one really needs anymore. What <laughs> is the point of a bed knob? Like, what? Why would you even have one versus none? Aesthetics or function? Yeah, I I guess you could need that for a canopy bed. I'm not sure. Do you put a canopy? Yeah, but that... th- there was no canopies in these ones, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I've never had any any beds with those things oh wait 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 no last time i lived in the states i think on in our apartment we had a couple not knobs but you know it came up a little bit so you spend enough time in your bed you remember what some of them look like um, <laughs> so so if you don't have bed knobs then you've got no chance of traversing dimensions unfortunately so yeah. maybe that's the reason that's the reason why you want to upgrade that's right yes yes and all all witches and wizards need need bed knobs on their beds uh, and they need the, uh, the spells of uh, Asistroth. Am I saying that right? They say in the movie. I think I'm just like spittering out wrong. I'll butch it as bad as you would. I would say like Astaroth. Yeah, yeah. That definitely stuck out as, you know, uh, something of things we, we like to talk about these days. Uh, weird old uh, grimoires and things, right? <laughs> I guess that counts and, as uh, grimoire, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, the, the grimoires are basically the the magical manuals from the the Middle Ages. And, and I, there, I do... there are some straight up incantations in here because there's I don't I can't even pronounce all the words uh, again, but it's like Traguna, Makotis, Tricorum, Sadis D, which is like the magical incantation that she's constantly saying. And that roughly I mean, this was created by the Sherman brothers. It wasn't as far as I'm aware, it didn't come from like an old Yiddish, you know, grimoire. It was just the Sherman brothers kind of having fun, but they were supposed to translate to wood, metal, earth, water, fire. So it's kind of Captain Planety in a way. I mean, Captain Planet's essentially making the exact same invocations. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I was, I guess the Sherman brothers enjoyed writing gibberish was was their thing anyway. They were like the geniuses of gibberish, maybe. I don't know if well, you've seen well, they that. took a they they got a lot of inspiration from Yiddish uh, folk songs for sure. So some of it sounds like gibberish, and I think it was based in what maybe just would sound like gibberish if you didn't know a lot of Yiddish, which I don't, so it and, does. And then in this movie, the, the Portobello Road song, I guess, was the insanity-inducing one, and it seemed like a mildly racist place. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Not only was it racist, but I, within the context of the movie, we're talking about World War II, like, it opens up on Nazis. Like, it's it's not like a subtle uh, tone. Like, it is It is exclusively about you get uh, World War II Nazis in the at the beginning. There's swastikas in the credits. So when they start talking about Portobello Road, and it's where you can find all of these um, heirlooms and genuine gems and gold and crystals, thinking like, this is just the Nazi gold trail. Like, you guys are peddling in stolen Nazi, you know, booty. This is not something to make a song about. Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, and I was just writing about the song. I'm assuming this has now been going on for hours, and this place sucks, but it, it's also evil. Okay. <laughs> well, they, they say uh, the, the uh, pen used by Shelley, as in Mary Shelley, uh, you know, Frankenstein, which is about the Bavarian Illuminati for another episode, Waterford Crystals, the, Napoleon's Pistols, Society Heirlooms, and Genuine Gems, and on and on and on. It's, it's actually a fairly long song with a bunch of really weird lyrics, but it's about... And I always thought of like the dark web or like the Silk Road, like they're just peddling in illegal 
goods here, things that would get you arrested if you were like, you shouldn't have Napoleon's pistols, right? And it sounds like if you do, that's like a like you're dealing in stolen goods essentially. And and I did think you know there were several things here that also make you things that um, J.K. Rowling would have brought into Harry Potter. Like there's definitely a Diagon Alley vibe here. Um, yeah. Uh, we, weird, weird hate towards certain groups of people. I guess that's here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that um, in the incantations. I mean, obviously that's a really old thing, but definitely there's there's kind of a through line. Like this is like the world of Hogwarts, like not functioning properly or something. And and just to add to the, I mean, maybe I'm the one looking into this one, but to add to what felt like subtle racist undertones, this like fantasy world's called Nabumbu. Which is just the word makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, not too far from the Biru, I guess. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I, to, I think I'm, it was just coming straight off a Jungle Book. It felt like something that they cut out of the first Jungle Book was calling the city Nabumbu. Yeah, I was just trying to like like take it in a different direction, so I don't feel as bad about it. So, but <laughs> <laughs> Nibiru, sure, why not? The animated section here isn't that long, but yeah, like you said, the fish, we basically see the king straight out of Robin Hood, which I guess was a, you know, being produced about the same time. Isn't that the king from Robin Hood we see? Yeah, there there was a lot of kind of recycled elements it looked like in this one. And I and I did a little digging. I was looking through the IMDb trivia and then following a bunch of rabbit holes, but apparently that that particular scene where they'd had the animation frustrated Angela Lansbury to no end because she wanted to improv and she wanted to kind of inject her little stuff into it. But because the animation, I guess had been done before the live action, there was absolutely no improv. You know, you couldn't Im uh, improvise at all because it would have thrown off all of the pre-done animation at that point. So I guess that limiting, you know, creativity really got to her on this movie and, and it made it less enjoyable to her. Oh, good she never did Star Trek then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the show being the show's being notorious for no improvisation, please stick to the script. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it was a oh yeah, the shoes. I was like, we see those shoes for those animated shoes for a while, uh, after the main animated sequence. I was like, Oh, these getting back to Roger Rabbit, which you don't want me to compare this movie to, but I was like, those must be like the shoes Judge Doom will murder and roger rabbit <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's a it's a fine comparison because they are separated by what like 20 years or so yeah yeah um I, we do want to talk about the song lyrics of course but i just wanted to bring up uh, one other thing is the old man brigade kind of stuck with me i mean i'm sure that's definitely a thing that was happening at the time but it, it's like the the opposite of the children's crusade i guess the old men just stay at home pretending to be soldiers Maybe or it could have been like the Adventure Club. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Although I guess you might, especially if you're on the coast, you might expect some kind of like sudden invasion in the middle of a war, especially early on, because I don't think the Battle of Britain. They say August 1940. When was the Battle of Britain? Before or after that? I don't remember. <laughs> and I mean, th this is tangential, but related because there was another old men's club that got affected by World War Two. Um, again, on a little more, a bit of a tangent, but like the Jekyll Island Hunt Club, that was off the coast of southern Georgia, essentially on Jekyll Island, right outside of uh, New Brunswick, I believe. Oh yeah, and we had that class was... trips there. <laughs> What's that? I had several class trips to Jekyll Island. Okay, so you, so you know about Jekyll Island, and this is basically where uh, the Federal Reserve was passed. They actually have a dining room called the Federal Reserve Room where they signed all the papers and they you know, did all their dastardly plotting. Mm -hmm. uh, but the only reason that Jekyll Island essentially got shut down was because the government did not like the idea that J.P. Morgan and Joseph Pulitzer and the Warburgs and like all of the money in the entire country, you know, the Rockefellers, didn't like the idea that they would all be in one tiny little con you know, consolidated place it was off the coast and perhaps subject to U-boats uh, or just being taken out. So the government essentially annexed the island and took over it and told them, like, you know, go make your club somewhere else. We don't need you guys getting killed and ruining the entire country and the economy. Um, even, but that was now, though, basically an old man's club. 
I think also fourth grade was the class trip there. I think I I was in the Boy Scouts. I think we took a trip there. And I do remember even this would have been the 80s or 90s. But basically, when you're there, you do all your stuff on the south end of the island and you don't go to the north end of the island. <laughs> like that was still kind of off limits ish. <laughs> well, until recently uh, and recently as in the last 10 to 15 years, they've they've slowly been, you know, kind of um fixing up the island but for for a longest time you couldn't get there unless you got there illegally essentially and they had a big problem with people rowing over to the island and breaking into the homes and taking all of the the old plates and the china and the dishes and stuff but at the same time it was completely neglected so no one even knew if you were going there and and taking stuff but they've since uh refurbished all of the different major houses and and turn them into hotel rooms and stuff so it's it's definitely opened up way more than it probably was when you were in fourth grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I wonder if it was. We all just, I guess we were under the impression that it was like the you know rich clubs and stuff even at that time. But I guess they were rotting away at that point in time. And they, they were, still... yeah. They once the the U.S. government annexed it for World War II, that was pretty much the end of Jekyll Island Hunt Club as it as it was in the past. I guess they all moved to uh, Hilton Head at that point. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they they spread all over. Honestly, a lot of them went uh, over to I think like Deer Island area, like um, upstate and sort of Michigan area. Right, right, okay. Um, song lyrics. You wanted to talk about song lyrics? We got a few minutes uh, for that. Well, I mean, I was I was mostly talking about the the wood, metal, earth, water, fire, incantation, and then the Portobello Road lyrics, uh, where they they just list out really interesting things for a Disney movie, right? So they're talking about a, a, the snipper that clipped old King Edward's cigars. Um, they're talking about Rembrandt's. I mean, when I when I hear Rembrandt, World War II, underground, you know, art smuggling. Again, th- this is all Nazi goods. The Nazis stole a Rembrandt from somebody, and now apparently the the witches are just kind of like using this to uh, as exchange. So I'm I'm a, they don't have the lyrics here, but I think that in one of the redacted versions there might have been golden teeth which was cut for obvious reasons. Uh, they have a leather bound book of Attila the Hun. Uh, so like, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting collection of things that they're finding here and the things that they're dealing in. They mentioned history of cotton as like a boring thing. I'm like, I don't know. I, I've never, that could be quite interesting if you get into it. I don't, I, I just don't know. I'm sure there's some fascinating tales behind the history of cotton. Um, I, I want sort of, you know, you can read a book about the history of sod and it's, and it's in, enrapturing. Well, Disney has a song of the South, right? So that kind of goes into that area. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I guess so. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess this movie isn't as just like straight offensive as as people take Song of the South, but it seems to like touch on a lot more groups of people. I feel like there's Scottish racism in here. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're part of the UK, yeah. Well, for now, <laughs> but, I, I enjoyed the the premise of this movie far more than the movie itself, and it made me. And I was actually thinking uh, just out loud here, like I didn't give a lot of thought before now. But what what are the most recent live action slash animated Disney movies? Are we talking? Oh, oh, you mean like the remakes? Yeah, like what, what's the most recent movie that had an actual live-action person standing next to an animated cartoon character in the movie? Technically, I guess that would have been Pinocchio. Um, and then I guess The Little Mermaid comes out soon. Is it a real movie? Is it just on streaming? I don't know. Have I watched any does, of these wait, since live-action? Does, live does Pinocchio book? have traditional animation? Oh, no, no, along... no, no. You mean well, like that's what I mean, style. like like Roger Rabbit or Bedknobs and Broomstick style. Oh, okay, okay. That's a harder question, isn't it? What have we seen? It has to be Disney, because after there were a few after Roger Rabbit, like, but not Disney. I think there was like Cool World or something. Yeah, that the Cool World's the only other one I can really think of. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I, I know there was a handful of like you know niche ones, but but as far as major motion Disney movies go, yeah, that's probably the end of the road. Because once CGI starts showing up, when that happens, it's going to be with uh, CGI stuff now. So. I mean, sometimes you don't know if the movie you're watching should be called animated or not, you know? <laughs> so so Bedknobs and Broomsticks right. might actually be towards the tail end of these live-action animation combinations. 
Yeah, I think that's part of why the VH box appealed to me because there weren't that many options. Uh, what else was there? There would have been a Saludos Domingo. No, the I can't remember the '40s ones mix or not. Yeah, so there aren't that many. I mean, that, that I think I did see Song of the South as a kid, and that was the appeal for me because obviously I wouldn't have noticed the the subtext, right? I'm just like, hey, here's a here's a bear and a rabbit on screen with people. That's cool. It does make me appreciate Roger Rabbit all the more uh, when you see everything else that you can compare to it. It feels like that's the pinnacle of what can be done when you when you put you know all Actual your effort budget into it. into it. Yeah, I yeah. mean that's this is not like a frontline movie. You know, that's part. Of, again, Disney has not figured out how to properly do live action yet in 1971. So um, the formula just it needed you know money and like a good director. <laughs> that sort of thing and we we didn't mention this one i i thought this was an interesting tidbit but this movie was essentially the last major disney movie that the sherman brothers worked on and from what i understand and i'm sure i'm missing all sorts of interesting context and nuance here but basically walt decided that the movie was too long based on some feedback that he got from theaters and you know business reasons and decides to cut the movie back dramatically to a, a shorter runtime. And Wouldn't that doing be Roy so, by this point? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. It'll be, it'll be Roy by this point. But but at this point, uh, Disney decides to make it short. And by doing that, they cut out the equivalent of about two Sherman songs. And they just do not like this. And I guess take a little bit of a stand over it. And this becomes like one of the last major, not the last movie they do, but one of the last um, Disney movies that they do. Yeah, I th I think they still do a few ride songs after this, but like that's dealing with different people too, I suppose. They do, and then they come back in like the year two thousand. They did another one. I can't remember what it was, uh, but th but they took a you know more than a decade break from working with Disney, and it sounds like it was, the, you know, one of the can the straws that broke the camel's back on this one was getting some of their songs cut. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine they didn't like the hybrid nature of the Jungle Book either. So, although the best song wasn't theirs, but <laughs> that's the unfortunate truth in that case. Um, we, I guess we should talk a little bit about the weird um, ghost army at the end where you have all the 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 telekinetically or just, I guess, um, not telekinetic. They're not controlling them with telekinesis, but the the magically alive suits of armor and things coming to to wage battle is pretty trippy in a way. Yeah, I actually was probably my favorite part of the whole movie, and I wish there was more of that and less of the the hybrid animation. Because this this was like actual suits of armor that I assume they were suspending on nylon or something, right? Oh yeah, and there's there's a lot of like composite shot stuff, which I you know I like seeing because it's like wow, that was hard to do. It doesn't look perfect, but you appreciate. I, it. I mean, practical effects win me over, even if they look a little bit cheesy. Like even when we were watching Mary Poppins, right? Like the stupid table gag with the the bag, even though you can, you know it's like oh, there's a mirror there, or there's like a little bit of a crude green screen kind of thing going on. It's still fun to watch, even though you know how it's working. And this is kind of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, my note was what, uh, let's defeat the SS with whimsy. I mean, I don't actually think this was the SS, but saying let's defeat the German army with whimsy just didn't have as much punch to it. Um, at, at my job, this is this is a bit of a tangent, but, um, you know, we have summer school, spring school, and when we're making um, <clears throat> files and stuff, you always abbreviate. So all over our computer, it says things like SS plans. <laughs> <laughs> you know ss schedule so yeah yeah just because don't we don't want to write <laughs> you always feel school. like you're, you're doing like some horrible plotting when you go into your lesson plans <laughs> yeah exactly so it's it's fun <laughs> um i guess we're, we're running a little low on time here so are there any other uh, major hot takes you have on on really either movie uh well so you had you have a note here and i just want to state this con this quote out of context i'm all right except for my bleeding ass <laughs> that's uh that was an interesting one especially for a movie about um bed knobs and broomsticks two things that would definitely result in that <laughs> although i i believe that i wrote that for the uh no mobiles fish hook oh okay so. okay i was wondering where i'd seen that one <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah in terms of our podcast we, we have them in the same context so that's cool <laughs> and Most man i honestly i'm just so happy to even have found out about no mobile uh i want to highly recommend it 
not because it's good at all, but, but it is just such a weird fever dream of a movie. And it just felt like someone did a lot of Coke in the Disney, you know, company and was like, I'm going to make this movie and I'm going to do it in a weekend. And they were like, Oh yeah, sure. Whatever guy. And he just grabbed a bunch of cameras and ran out the door and saw the Mary Poppins kids on the way out. And he's like, get in the car, Mary Poppins kids. And they just shot the movie over the weekend. And it turned out exactly what, it would seem like and i really hope the person you're describing is walt disney (laughs) because this is no mobile and jungle book are the last ones he was personally involved in (laughs) is is really no mobile one that he was personally involved in i didn't look into the the actual production history of that one yeah it's it's it's, because jungle book they he had a lot of influence in but died before they finished it i think i think he might i mean no mobile he was live action so I mean, he might have that that's amazing that this it. might have been the last sort of like piece of hollywood that he was actively involved in was freaking no mobile which no one even knows about yeah i mean maybe it's like a let it be abbey road thing where you do let it be first and then abbey road but just because of production <laughs> issues let it be becomes the last one I and mean, maybe that's kind of how it worked out I, I would love to know more of the backstory like whose passion project was no mobile uh you know it it did it come from uh, it didn't come from Grimm's brothers, but it did it come from like a a story. I guess these are the questions that I should have figured out before we started <laughs> talking about it. But man, the, no mobile is just a nice rabbit hole that you can just sink into. It's quite difficult to find information about it, as you said. It's quite difficult to find the movie. Um. Yeah, no, it, it was not easy for me to find. I had to I had to dive deep into like eight years of uh, Usenet history, and I found it <laughs> uh, hidden back there. Um. But yeah, I guess we'll wrap this one up today. So it is, it's actually, it's the middle of March. What's up for you? Oh, actually, I've got a brand new book that just released today. Uh, and it's called Block Man and Punch. And it's sort of a, a parody and something that pays homage to classic superhero comics. Um, it, This one was written by Miguel McKenna. And it, basically it's about a guy named block man who uh can block any attack that's his power he can just block anything and his sidekick punch who can just punch really hard but he can only throw one of them uh but it's a really really hard punch and they basically go and have to discover and fight back against the illuminati there's also nazis in the very first scene <laughs> so just they, like that knobs and broomsticks well yeah because <laughs> because basically they find each other they realize they have superpowers and they're like well what should we do now that we have superpowers like well we have to go and find and punch nazis obviously uh so it, it turns into there into surfing sharks uh then they find um a guy named uh sheldon p company who is a a turtle that actually runs all of the, the global conglomerates for the Illuminati and then they go and find the Illuminati and it's got all of the, the same characters you would uh, expect to see there. And it's, it's a really funny read. So yeah, Blockman and punch. That's the new thing that I've got promoted right now. Okay. Sounds groovy. I, th- I think my, my best, my mental image when we go Illuminati is still the, the Illuminati group from the uh, metalocalypse cartoon several years back. Do you remember <laughs> minority team too? They had a really good one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just that was I another short-lived Adult Swim animation. Yeah, I uh, I watch. See, I watched too much Metalocalypse. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, as for this, it is a call at Disney. You can find us as such on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we're under the pod Patreon podcasting umbrella of Podcastio Podcastiest, where we're we're about to start changing some gears. We've been doing the Sci-Fi Sanctuary. And uh, we're keeping the format, but but changing the flow where we're, we've taken the um, top 100 and bottom 100 rated movies as <laughs> IMDb raters have rated them. And we just we juxtapose them. So we do the the hundredth best movie followed by the hundredth worst movie and work all our way up to number one. And uh, that means we have to watch Human Caterpillar two and three, but not one. <laughs> <laughs> That that's part of the thing is it's like you know I I'd never watch Human Caterpillar otherwise I think but in, have you like, seen oh, the first one? No, that's part of the charm. Like because it's not on the list, we're not going to watch the first one. We're going to go straight to two and three. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, 
yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the first one is its own thing, man. It doesn't even fit in IMDb scale, but yeah, I could I... see sequels <laughs> just being, you know, cash ins. I've already got a, a guest book who definitely knows one for that one. So someone there will, will know enough. But yeah, as for <laughs> myself, we're like intentionally not watching it. Um, so anyway, we're, we're getting that started in April, uh, which the I, I'm saying it live now, but I, I think we're going to go with the uh, title films and uh, uh, films and filth, the citizen cane of podcasting. So that being the subtitle <laughs> and then, you know, you decide, OK, we just watched the film. So is it film or is it filth? So <laughs> uh, no John Waters in, on the top bottom. I mean, I love John Waters, but I just feel like, you know, you might find pink flamingos in there and it's it's not. So we don't have to deal with the filthiest people alive, at least. Even is the it, room in there? Is the room in the bottom hundred anymore? Oh, uh, it is surprisingly not near the bottom. It's like sixty-seven or something. Yeah, Citizen Kane itself is only like eighty-seven best, so it's not as high on the list as you might think. Keep in mind, this is IMDb user ratings. Uh, my co-host hates the idea of rating things, so that's part of the conceit that <laughs> he, he thinks that rating things is stupid. So. <laughs> Anyway, that that's upcoming, and then yeah, the first two are going to be Ikiru, the um, Akira Kurosawa film, and two thousand one, a space travesty with Leslie Nielsen. Those are the opening two movies. I didn't even know that was a movie. I have to look that one up. I remember. I mean, I've never seen it, but I remember seeing that it existed. I wonder but, if it uh, was one of his like uh, his QVC style like infomercial movies, like the, um, the golf one. Yeah, I think it's in that that area of time. So. Okay, I guess we're going to close it out today because you got some places to be and I got some places to be. So <laughs> next time is Robin Hood, I believe. So I don't know if I want to look into the history of any of the production. <laughs> I think I might just watch it and make observations first. I don't know. Okay. Hey, if I have to, if I have to watch Human Centipede two and three, then Caterpillar, whatever it is, then uh, you have to look into Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, the thing is, no one's going to have their heart broken by finding out the people that made Human Centipede might not have been you know, great people. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's not going to ruin that for you, but it, it might, you know, add a little bit of a different tint to freaking Robin Hood, which practically raised me. Okay, there's there's our cliffhanger for you, then you can come back next time and see how it works out. <laughs>
Yeah.